This is a Federal News Network podcast. To become organized for cybersecurity, agencies need to get their data organized. Beyond data lakes or data stores, important as they are, the government needs what you might call a concept of operations. That's where one of the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission's top recommendations come in. For more, I spoke with the senior director at the commission, Robert Morgus. The commission recommended that joint collaborative environment. Let's talk about what the objective there is first, and then we'll talk about how it might be constructed. Sure. Thanks for having me, Tom. Um, The joint collaborative environment is, as you said, a recommendation that the commission came out with uh, March of 2020. Um, The idea behind it is to create a collaborative environment, as you can probably tell from the title, that would help pool federal government data on cyber threats and cyber incidents uh, and eventually allow the private sector to plug in and both share information in and then glean insights out. Um, You know, I think the way that we look at this, at this particular uh, proposal being implemented, if it, if it does come to fruition over the next few years is in a couple of steps where you'll have to work on the FedGov side to get the information that, that the different departments and agencies, both on the high side and the low side collect We need to get that all sort of consolidated, standardized, and sort of interoperable shared into this environment. And then the second step will be to figure out a way to plug the private sector in. And would this include all of the federal government, that is to say, the intelligence community, the Defense Department, and civilian agencies? It's a good question. And I think ultimately the answer should be yes. Whether or not we get there, I think, is is still an open question. I think the model for something like this is, is looking at the UK, where they've got the National Cybersecurity uh, Center. And the big thing there, they've got sort of a high side uh, floor, basically, in the, in the building. They've got a low side floor. Um, and those two talk to each other, but they're not necessarily in the same environment. I think I could foresee something similar with the joint collaborative environment where you have a high side that is plugged into and talking to low side, potentially providing insights, but you don't necessarily have all of the high data flowing directly into the environment. Almost like a Bletchley Park for the 21st century. Not this similar. Not this similar. All right. And where does the commission envision that this joint collaborative environment would live? There would probably be, I'm guessing, one agency that would be the managing director, if you will, to operate it. Yeah, I think the the logical place for it, given the sort of interest on the FedGov side and then plugging the private sector would be CISA. Uh, at DHS, I think that that makes the most sense, given the amount of touch points they have both across the federal government from the FedGov IT side uh, and then with the private sector. The the key then becomes how you integrate the intelligence community into it. And that's a relationship that I know, you know, DHS and, and the fort, for example, are working on that relationship already. Uh, and that's something that I think still needs to be ironed out. And for this to happen, I mean, it's easy to say, yeah, great big data store and everyone contributes all their data. But it sounds like a lot of groundwork would be required on the part of agencies to be able to share data, and there would have to be some kind of process by which the data could be made interoperable. How do you see that all working? Yeah, so you know there are a few things that need to happen, and I think the first big movement is going to be an authorization from Congress because this needs to be resourced and, and authorized before we can do that. And I think part and parcel of that, there needs to be some sort of nudge, likely from the Hill, to get the the federal departments and agencies that do collect relevant cyber threat data, cyber incident data, uh, to get them to start talking to one another about how they make sure that that data can interact with with 
data from other agencies, right? So standardization, interoperability. There's also, there needs to be some sort of conversation about the, the, the actual infrastructure that would enable this, right? I mean, when we when we talk about the joint collaborative environment, we think about a cloud environment. What does that mean in terms of how agencies plug in? Uh, what sort of infrastructure do they need in order to modernize, in order to sort of be able to actually interoperate with, with the cloud environment that's hosted at DHS? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of agencies already have cloud computing resources and contracts that they're using, both DOD and and the uh, now intelligence community, as well as the civilian agencies. So those existing mechanisms, though, I guess, have different levels of security, different levels of applications that they have in there. You're looking for something that would be totally separate from any of those? Not necessarily, although, it, you know, you bring up the security of the environment. And I think that's that's one of the big challenges that something like this face because it is simultaneously supposed to be open to the outside. Uh, the private sector will be plugging in, but you also want to make sure that you're not sort of leaving it open for adversaries to come in. All right. And so let's envision then that there is a joint cooperative environment. It exists and there's 88 petabytes of data within there. What would be the application of it? How would it work in terms of actually detecting and responding to threats? So I think that the, the big thing that the environment would be able to do is provide more of a real-time environment than what we have right now. I don't know, Tom, you know, the anecdote we hear about the way that information flows between departments and agencies right now is, you know, the most common mode of, of data sharing or information sharing is right now Microsoft Outlook. Um, the environment would allow folks to share data more quickly. I think the key there is you're, you're sort of approaching real time when you talk about data sharing at that point. Ideally, you'd see agencies, departments and agencies plugging in and sending their feeds directly to the environment and allowing others to sort of query that data set uh, look for, you know, tactics, TTPs that they can that they can sort of glean and, and look at how they might be able to better protect their own networks. Ultimately, I think you'd like to see the private sector eventually, uh, probably starting with the sort of big critical infrastructure provide, providers plugging in in the same way that we'd see departments and agencies, though. Like I said at the beginning, I think that's kind of a two-step process. The first step is to get, you know, the FedGov's house in order before we can really bring any meaningful sort of bring the private sector in in any meaningful way. I would think the metadata would be just as important as the data, because in order to do research, to query a database, you have to know what's there. And so the the metadata about what is in there and to whom it's available would seem to be a really important imperative to have in the center. I would, I would think so. Um, and, you know, we've seen... <laughs> We have heard about the value of metadata in, in especially in analyzing threats uh, and particularly in sort of um, translating threats across different environments to different departments, different agencies, different sort of defensive assets. So, yeah, I think, you know, the meta metadata will be will be just as important as sort of some of the granular indicators of compromise and, and the like. And for this database, let's call it data lake, whatever you want to call it, this data store, this environment, I can envision it sending alerts out in real time as algorithms attached to the data detect things, but also as a research environment where people can go back and look at the long context, for example, of what was happening or whatever research purpose they might have. Can the environment, as you envision it, support both real-time alerts and queries as well as research based on large stores of data that's maybe no longer operationally relevant? I think in an ideal world, yes. I think it's going to take some time to get there. You know, I think I think about the success of the environment sort of in the two-year, the five-year, and the 10-year time frame. Um, after it's sort of authorized and starts being implemented. And I think in the two-year time frame, you're looking at it, it more being a sort of relevant real-time information sharing environment. 
uh, that for the most part, the federal government, especially on the civilian side, the low side are plugged into. Um, as you grow sort of the two to five year time frame, you start to see more of that longitudinal data, uh, more opportunities for folks to plug in from a research perspective, and you start integrating the high side in. You know, after five years, I would I would like to see the, the environment welcoming, you know, critical infrastructure providers and, and having a clear process for them to plug in. And then sort of over the longer term, I think what is potentially really interesting about this would be sort of the DevSecOps uh, opportunity and the opportunity for folks to start building applications and building building new widgets in and on the environment in order to sort of make some of that a little bit easier, a little bit more approachable for folks. Robert Morgus, Senior Director for the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission, will post the interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where what you can do to help them. Uh, I 
We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federals organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. 
and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.